Joy Harjo is the Poet Laureate of the United States. You may know her collections, including Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings and An American Sunrise, both of which were bestsellers. Her new book is a memoir. It's a follow-up to Crazy Brave, and the new book is called Poet Warrior, and Joy joins us on the show today to talk about her work. Joy, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Before we start talking about your books, I'd really like to get something clear on nomenclature. Native American is not a term that you use to describe yourself or your community, and you have preferred terms. You use Native, you use Indigenous, you use Native Nations. Can we talk about what those words mean for you and your community? Sure. When I was growing up, we used Indian and a lot of us are American Indian and a lot of us still of my generation do, even though that's problematic for a number of reasons. Ultimately, we call ourselves by our tribal nation. I'm Muscogee Creek Nation. And there's Anishinaabe, there's over 570 something federally recognized tribal nations. And Native American was a, a term that came from academia. I watched it emerge from academia and kind of take hold so that now even many of our young people use that term. So I've almost given into it, but I just say native. I think I do that through In Poet Warrior. I use native and sometimes Mm -hmm. I use indigenous and indigenous meaning original, original peoples of a particular place. I mean, everybody's indigenous from somewhere. Their peoples are from a land. I think of it as a land-based, almost like land-based term. And usually if you speak anything native, the context is usually the land where somebody's original homelands are or where their origin story is planted. The new memoir, Poet Warrior, is a combination of poetry and prose. Your first memoir, Crazy Brave, was more prose than there were a couple of poems in there, correct? Yes, there were there were a couple of poems. But what I did with Poet Warrior is there's a speaker that starts out as a young woman and <laughs> grows up through the memoir. Now, I didn't plan that. It's just interesting how it happened. That's creativity. You know, Mm -hmm. how do you explain creativity except following certain kinds of impulses? I mean, some impulses are useful. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you, did you build Poet Warrior around the poems? Or did the poems show up after the prose was complete? It was part of the whole, it all worked Mm -hmm. together. Yeah, it was, it all kind of came together that way. So how did Poet Warrior start for you? Well, I had a contract at Norton for the new memoir, Mm -hmm. and my last memoir was 14 years late. I didn't know that until after it was called in by my editor, and so I decided I'd better get on it and finally started writing after I realized there were things I didn't want to write about but needed to be said. And this one came in ahead of time. (laughs) Yes. But the pandemic happened, and I wasn't traveling constantly, and I thought this just seemed urgent too. And it's an interesting question because I'm trying to think of how I did start it. You don't always start at the first line or the first page. I'm looking to see how it starts. I have that one poem to open it with Girl Warrior. And I didn't start with the Girl Warrior speaker. I started with going around with my Aunt Lois hearing stories. I think I started there. I miss her. And sometimes when I miss people, I like to write about them. Can we introduce listeners to your Aunt Lois? Because she's pretty spectacular. 
She is. And I say is because she's still with me, at least where I come from, or at least my experience is that we all have teachers and people close to us. And some of them remain, they're not necessarily, they're not in the physical, maybe they were in the physical, and they're just there. And she was always there for me and wonderful. She was an artist, a painter in the early 1900s. She did teach art classes. She had a shop in Oklahoma mm-hmm. for a native art shop. And new history. I love going to her apartment because it was filled with books and papers and and all kinds of stories. She knew history. She knew a lot about the history of our people at removal, even right before the removal of our tribal nation from the South to Oklahoma. Is she also how you learn the story of your great grandfather, Manahui? Is that how you heard his story? My father never talked much, period. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, but it was his side of the family. Mm-hmm. He was very proud of being Native, and you couldn't mistake him for anybody but Native, which came with positives and negatives living in Oklahoma. But he was very proud of history. He knew that there were major leaders in our family. But she was the one who really told me about Manawi and gave me the stories that you don't find in history books. There's a story about your great-grandfather that you describe as a healing story that appears pretty early in Poet Warrior. Can you share that story? He had a reputation for, I guess, entertaining. <laughs> mm-hmm. He also had stores and property and, and then fought Andrew Jackson at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which was the largest Native uprising, quote-unquote, in the country that most people don't know about. I guess he, he was a good entertainer. So this story was about, about the time he had a party and he and his warriors, and they were really partying. They would just take time to party. And, and the government agent came to see him and he made the government agent wait for three or four days until the end of the party. <laughs> I think it was like that back then for, I think everybody, I mean, now we, we limit every, because of the Puritan work week. <laughs> Everything has to happen on Friday night or Saturday, and then Sunday you repent, and then Monday you're back working it. And it was different, I think, for everybody way back. Your mother's grandfather, your great-grandfather on your maternal side, was a Baptist preacher. That was actually, that's on my, that's my father's side too. Oh, okay. My Aunt Lois is my Aunt Lois, my okay. grandmother, Naomi, that was their father. He's the one who's come around me since I was a child and mm-hmm. he, had, he was gone. He was a leader. He was a school superintendent. He was stepped in as principal chief during a shift for the Muscogee Creek Nation. Very well respected. And I know, especially when I was younger and would run into older people, of our our tribal nation, they were always very respectful of him and would talk about him. And anything I find is that he was often a negotiator. He's been very helpful, but it's funny. Genealogy is really the stories. And that's Mm -hmm. when I would get together with the old people. It's like all of the stories. And I think history is like that everywhere. It's really in the genealogy in those stories, because recently I found out from a white side, a non-native side, that there were preachers all the way back. Also people in insane asylums. So I think, well, why would they have put people in insane asylums back then, except they were different or they were visionaries or poets, or especially if you're a woman or you were an artist. You've been collecting stories for a really long time, though. You write 
my ears were bent for stories, which is a line that I love. And you treated your mother's kitchen table like it was a story circle. And you would hide under the table as she and her friends would sort through their lives. And you treated this as if it were a form of magic. And in many ways it was because you learned everything there was to know about the women in your community. Yeah, the good, the bad, the ugly. And that's why when I was a little kid, I said, I don't want to get married. (laughs) I don't want to get married. I want to have children. I want to be an artist. I'm going to be. I didn't say I want to be. I would say I'm going to be an artist. But yeah, I always got the best stories there. And I can still feel there was a little bolt or screw in that my back, I can still feel it on my backbone. I didn't, I was going to write that in there and I kept trying to put it in there just right and couldn't, but I could feel that in that circle that I would sit in where the legs of the table kind of bent in and went out. You also write poetry is a tool for navigating transformation. And yet you had never planned to be a poet. No, (laughs) no, I, you never see uh, a table for poetry at career day. I think it's more of a calling, so to speak, put it on a pedestal, but it's not the easiest kind of path because you know, you, you don't go to poetry to really make a career out of it. It's more about what draws you. It's more about going into the places where there are no words and finding words. You have a line in Poet Warrior about being taught poetry in school as a child. Mm-hmm. And in fact, your mother taught you William Blake's poetry very early on, which is a detail I love. But you were also trying to relate what you were learning in the classroom to your world and your community. And you were saying, I didn't hear the poetry until I started listening for it in speeches. What's the line here? Often sung or in the language of speeches and speaking, doing the hard work of rituals. So for you, poetry represents much more than what some folks might see just on the page. I think anybody loves listening to an orator. I mean, there's, there's similar characteristics that go across poetry or oration. And a lot of that is phrasing. It's word choice. It's rhythm which is part of phrasing and uh, metaphor, all of it. That's what bends your ears towards listening to any speaker. It's wild to me that we talk so much about reading and writing poetry, but we rarely talk about listening to poetry. And it really is an art that demands to be read out loud. Mm -hmm. What does listening teach you as a poet and a musician? I think you get more of what can't be said (laughs) when you listen, more so than when you're just reading. I mean, even reading, is it's a certain kind of listening. But I kind of equate writing things down and putting them in books, which I love. I love holding a book. I love that we can't always be in the presence of the storyteller which a novelist is and a memoirist is and or the poet which a a singer can be singing poetry or a writer you can we cannot always be in that presence i like listening you know of course you listen to music but also listening to poetry i mean that's the original oratory and it's the root of it and i think most poetry in the world is not really written down I mean, it wasn't until rather recently in history that people had access to books. And even then it was limited. Not everyone had access until libraries. Or, and even now that that's shifting some. I was 
listening to a couple of your albums while I was preparing for this interview. And I Pray for My Enemies came out in March of this year. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh, March, yeah. And then I was also listening to Winding Through the Milky Way, which is one of your older albums. There are a lot of lyrics that show up on both albums that I had remembered from An American Sunrise and Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings, which I think are your, your two most recent collections. Yes. Okay. What do you get from adding music to your verse? What is it about performing your poetry in that way? Because the music is amazing. Your band is great. You're terrific. You play the saxophone, don't you? Uh-huh. Yeah, I play saxophone, flutes, mm-hmm. and I've been working away learning piano for composition because I'm working on a musical that I realize is more like an opera, but it's contemporary. I'm doing my own thing with it, mm-hmm. which, I, which I did with Poet Warrior, etc. I kind of make my own form, but I think you see it as an extension. Yeah, I, I have to keep up my chops every day for all of it. So it, they are different disciplines, but poetry at least my kind of poetry, and there's all kinds of poetry, everything from theoretical puzzles to epic ballad kind of poems. There's all kinds, even though I was led in graduate school to believe there was only one, you know, one kind of poetry that wasn't worth anything. But if you go back to the roots, the indigenous roots, perhaps, and come back to indigenous of poetry, there's music, there's dance. The hula tradition in Hawaii is is one example that uh, when you get past the uh, the tourist hula, it's it's poetry. It's based on an epic poem about two sisters. That's part of the origin story, you know, of hula. So you've got poetry, and then you have the words with the the hand movements and the body movements and etc. And if you look at you know old English poetry, you go back to the ballads, balladeers, you know, people traveling about all over the world, actually, in um, with poetry and stories. There was one story about a, a man in India who goes around with a, like a sheet that he projects onto or performs in front of with shadow. I can't remember, but he would recite these epic stories for the people in these villages. They have no electricity or, or running water and no internet. He had memorized these long stories that the people would sit like you would at a drive-in movie and listen. And what always astounded me was that he had a pile of rocks. He could pick up a rock and in a way that he had programmed that rock anyway. His memory was programmed with that rock to recall that story word by word. I'm still amazed by that. That makes two of us. I used to be able to recite some poetry from memory, but I'm out of practice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I performed a one-woman show in, uh, oh, it's been about 10 years ago, called uh, Wings of Night Sky, Wings of Morning Light. And I remember the first rehearsal, and I had been Googling teleprompters. <laughs> and my director says, no, no teleprompter. And when I first did it, the show was an hour and a half, over an hour and a half. Well, gradually I cut it down, not to make it shorter, but, you know, I was, every time I would perform the show after the evening, I would go and revise. And the next night I would perform it. I was always revising it. Do you still do that? Do you still revise as you go? If you're on tour reading your work, do you revise as you're performing? 
Sometimes I do. It, once I get something in a book, it's pretty much done. But I was reading a piece out of Poet Warrior for an audience the other day, and I added two words that if I could go back in a sentence, it has to do with rhythm and also pacing, pacing. But I've learned, and this is good for anybody with papers, <laughs> any document, even before you send off an email, you have questions about one, don't send it if you have any questions at all. But read it out loud, because that's how you catch things. I mean, you really, I've learned there's levels of that. If you read out loud to yourself, well, you're still yourself audience. So there's still that internal self, but you still catch a lot. If you read aloud to another person, that takes it to another level of listening and being able to hear what you've written. But the biggest test is reading it out loud to an audience. And I have done this more than once, and I should have learned is not to read something really new to an audience, because then you, you hear everything. <laughs> that's, the best, that's the best way to catch everything is reading aloud to an audience. You were taught William Blake at a very young age by your mother. You discovered Emily Dickinson in the second grade when you asked for poetry books for your birthday and you were given an anthology. Emily Dickinson appears again in An American Sunrise. And I'd love to take a look at what you did. For those of you playing along at home, we're on page 60 of An American Sunrise. And it's I'm Nobody, Who Are You, which is a very famous poem by yeah. Dickinson, if you know her work. But then you added a line at the end of the poem. I didn't add a line to her poetry. I just, at the end of, okay. farther down the page, I add a one-line commentary. Because An American Sunrise is really about removal and a particular Creek, Muskogee Creek line. I have more than one line, of course, and uh, because generations map, we map out, but uh, I was thinking about how old was Emily Dickinson and, and what was going on with the Muskogee Creek people when she was writing on Nobody, Who Are You? Are You Nobody to a poem that really, I could really hear her. I felt her as somebody that I could trust and somebody who would listen. And I wrote, Emily Dickinson was six years old when Monopoly and his family began the immigration to the West. A lot of times, we tend to think history or older poet or, or whatever, and they, and they disappear into kind of a misty gray of long ago. When actually, what helped me is when I started thinking in generations instead of thinking in years. And that shifted everything because then it made it a lot more familial and it brought history closer up. And that's what I did with that line is like, wait a minute, see, here's Emily Dickinson, and she was living in the same world in the same country as my great, great grandfather, uh, six generation, I'm the sixth generation from him, he was born in the 1700s, late 1700s. And it's not that far away, because I can tell you who his son is, his daughter, my great grandmother, my great, great grandfather, David Menahui was his son. I think it was his son, grandson. And I know stories. It was not that far away. So Emily Dickinson was not, not that far away. Her voice, I felt close, but also here is this history going on. And my understanding is that she was concerned about uh, removal because people were hearing about it in the East. It was in the newspapers. There were arguments. And Andrew Jackson, it was outlawed. He went against Congress on his own. And we saw that kind of action happening recently, made an edict that the tribes in the Southeast be removed because the Southern states wanted natives out. 
Every poem has ancestors. You write about Scott Mamaday and Audre Lorde and Adrian Rich. Can we talk about the influence that some of these other poets have had on your work? Scott Mamaday, you read his work and suddenly you thought, oh, I think I am going to be a poet. That came from hearing Native voices, Scott Mm -hmm. Mamaday, from hearing Simon Ortiz. I remember hearing, I think Simon was the first living poet (laughs) that I met and heard read poetry. I had read poetry. I was a reader of poetry. I'd heard my mother recite poetry. But to have a living poet who is Native, that shifted everything. Because again, there was a context that included me. Not that American poetry, yeah, I'm part of that. But this was like, oh, wow, here's a voice that is close to the reality and the people that it blew it open. And then Scott Mamaday was part of that. Leslie Silco, the poet novelist, she's been working on this novel for a long time called The Blue Sevens. And I can't wait to read it. She always goes deep. That blew it open for me. And I, I was living in New Mexico. I was a student at the University of New Mexico when I started writing poetry, part of native rights movements. There was also the feminist movement going on. There were kind of the multicultural presence and awareness that oh, wow, there's more than just voices like Emily Dickinson's in this country. I saw that Janet Mirakatani just passed, and she was one of those voices that I got to hear and know around. We were all part of, we were all, felt like there was a community. I remember her. She was part of that. I was there with Alarista, Ricardo Sanchez. I met Sandra Cisneros when she and I were in graduate school together at Iowa, And I remember at one point in class, she and I are sitting in the back of the classroom. And I said, yeah, Indians always sit in the back. (laughs) But yeah, so the poetry, that blew it open. And I started writing poetry. At the same time, I got to hear Galway Cannell read. And he knew most of his poems by heart. That was so powerful to stand up to hear him. And he did his reading almost all without reading. Well, that's powerful. I've done that in my classes, had students memorize poetry, which they're horrified and don't want to. But it's very powerful to sit there and go around the room with notebooks in front of us and just just read by memory. I always wanted to teach a class orally with notebooks. And the students would have to come in with something new every week memorized. But I knew that I probably wouldn't feel the class. I wouldn't get the numbers. And that would mean I would have to memorize every week. But it's powerful or something powerful. But that's how I came into writing poetry. And I was part of Native rights movements. And, you know, what better way for anybody, anyone listening? It's powerful just to sit down and with a pen. I've got notebooks everywhere. I always tell myself, well, I should keep one notebook and buy them all the same and write legibly. But (laughs) I don't do that. I have notebooks everywhere. And I write a lot in them. I write a lot. A lot of stuff begins in them. And then I take it to the computer. Although sometimes I will write on the computer because it's faster, especially writing prose. I think Louise Erdrich writes longhand, and there's something about that. But it's helpful to everyone, whether you call it a poem, whether it doesn't matter what you call it, really. It's just to sit with yourself, one, to get that time alone. The problem writing on the computer, I mean, I have to turn off internet, or I I like that focus feature, because I'm too easily distracted. There's something about having that time And then writing about what you're feeling and thinking and things you've heard and lines of poetry and all of that just to get back center and realize that you're a living human being with an imagination and things come to you. 
where does the best stuff of a poem or a story come from? I mean, how did I come in Poet Warrior with this character who called Girl Warrior? There's an actual coming-of-age ceremony in the pages where she is given the name Poet Warrior. I didn't come up with that. It was something that happened, or you might say organically, but where do these constructions and these ideas come from? I think of all the poetry ancestors and the descendants, because if you think of ancestors and their descendants, and that's also a living kinetic, would you say, idea or, or present, so that even by the end of the book, I end with, and I shouldn't tell you the ending, but that's okay, it's a memoir, is that I put in a dream where I dreamed myself carrying my seventh generation granddaughter in my arms to the story. And I know it's true. And I know it will happen because I've seen it with my grandchildren. I know maybe it's happening right now, given how time works and how time works in a story. And that, that's what I like about writing poetry is time is one of the ma- is a major tool. And or it happened a long time ago when I walked this baby into the into the family story. Is that your favorite piece of Poet Warrior? Do you have a favorite part? I like that it ends there and that dream. That that was a dream that happened and I was carrying her when I was near finished. It was a gift, that dream. Yeah, it was a gift. And and it says, Poet Warrior sang into the baby a song that would give her strength and sustenance, would always call her ancestors to stand behind her. No matter the trials, no matter history and heartbreak, then walk, Then she walked into her, with her into time to deliver the baby to the earth story that needed her. Then I think about the audience. I mean, there, there are audience members who think, okay, well, we're in the concrete world. I can only believe what I can see or hear or touch. But you're feeling memory all the time. I mean, what does love look like? What does it feel like? There are some things that are timeless. You're very present with your child self, even your baby self, and even the older self. They are a presence, a running presence that we engage with and even struggle or fight with (laughs) these different uh, levels and even ancestors. I always warn, don't call all your ancestors in because some of them aren't really nice, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but it's not so, it's not anything weird or it's just how it is. A tree, I'm looking out the window at this tree and it it came from a seed. There were ancestors to get it there. It carries those ancestors just like all of us do. And we're all part of history. All of us has a story that's deeply bound and and, uh, I almost said and triggered, (laughs) but deeply bound, you know, historically. Who are some of the writers and musicians who are inspiring you now? Oh, well, where do I start? I need to be where my stack, I've got like three stacks of... (laughs) of reading I'm doing. There's this horn player and I, well, Esperanza Spalding always inspires me and she turned me on to this one horn player. I can't think of his name and I've gotten into Sun Ra again and he's not here, but he's still in, this is like a a horn saxophone ancestor. And let's see, there's so much good writing, a lot of great native writers like Laylee Longsoldier, poets, some really fine young poets, Natalie Diaz, who at a very young age won a Pulitzer Prize. There's a young uh, Chinese poet, Cheng Yang Feng, who I met. He's incredible. And I told him, I said, you know, you write from a very old place. And I said, so people may not want to listen to you or recognize you because a lot of what's going on is really fast and people are very career oriented and what you write is ageless. But he's doing, he's, he's doing it. And I, he wasn't really my student. I went to 
evaluate his professor's class and one of his poems was on the worksheet. And I, so afterwards I talked to him and he started coming to my office and we've kept up a correspondence. Can I ask you about the jacket art for Poet Warrior? It's a very intricate beaded piece. How did that jacket come about? That came about because <laughs> I have a wonderful editor and team at Norton, but they kept trying to line up a photographer to put me on the cover. And I up saying, no, I don't want to be on the cover. And so then I was looking at cover art and I thought, why not this beadwork? It was beaded by my daughter and it is so stunning. And it's an image of the water spider in the Muskogee Creek tradition, who when the earth was covered with water, carried a fire ember on her back to make fire. She's part of the dedication, you know, it's to keep the story going, which also says something in these times about female figures and female power and empowerment. In the natural world, so much is common sense. In this earth world, there is no life and there is no power without male-female harmony and balance. So to be in a culture or a, a distortion of culture in which women are treated less than males, the work with children is substandard pay when they're the most valuable resource. They're who we are. I like that water spider there because she's in a place of empowerment. She's helping weave the world with stories. At the same time, you know, designs and stories are dreams and a kind of dream weaver. And here she is carrying fire. She's important to the story. Women and women's voices are so important to the story. I say that I'm so dismayed at what's going on right now in the world and the devaluation of female power, because to devalue also means to devalue the male. There's a distortion at work. How do we change that? My first inclination, my very first is to suit up and go out and fight literally. But I've learned, you know, I've learned that, well, there are different tools. Yes, it's important. You always defend. If you have to defend, then you resort to violence. But the best tools are the ones that are often overlooked, like the power of compassion, the power of love, the power of language, the power of art, of images. I saw an image that I put on social media of an Afghan woman holding a piano, a keyboard. Well, around her, this but holding art, expression, singing, making music, creating, having dignity, being able to walk with respect openly. That's amazing. And we don't want to, to lose that. But I realized that in most countries in the world, I couldn't be writing Poet Warrior. Or if I did, I would have to hide it, or it would be passed around among people in pages. That's the reality in a lot of the world. So it's really important that we safeguard these rights and not be taken down by those who want to silence anyone who is not their religion or not their way of thought or not their skin color. This world is diverse. We're all here. We all have a place in the story. Everybody has a place in this story. And in any act to diminish the story down to one story, it just that goes against the way this whole world was created. I couldn't agree more. Joy Harjo, Poet Laureate of the United States. Your new memoir is Poet Warrior. It is out now. Thank you so much for joining us on Board Over. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 